All right. Welcome to the Decipher podcast. I'm very excited for this one. I've got my friend Joe Men, who is the author of a new book called The Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. Uh, as my guest today. So Joe, how are you, man? Congratulations on the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really psyched it's out. Yeah, I bet. It's, it, I know how long the writing and research process can be, especially for a nonfiction book like this. And I know you've been working on it for a long time. So it's got to be kind of a relief to actually have the physical book in your hands, I would bet. Yeah, it really is. I mean, um, I I turn out books at the rapid fire clip of like once every eight or nine years. Uh, and um, I put a lot into it, you know, so it's about almost three years uh, total. And I'd say like, you know, not all at once, I'd say maybe like a person year of work uh, or more went into this one. And um, well, it's like it's going off into the world in the, in a few days. Yeah, well, you're you're faster than George R. R. Martin, so you've got that going for you. <laughs> yeah, but he can make stuff up. I don't get to do that. <laughs> That's the whole thing, right? Writing a novel is a lot easier. Um, I can tell you that. Um, all right, so I wanted to kind of just start at the beginning. I know a little bit about this, but I wanted to kind of find out right up front. So, how did you settle on Cult of the Dead Cow as the something that you really wanted to dive into? That's a good question. So. Um, it's not obvious on the surface, right? I mean, because these guys, you know, peaked in fame like 20 years ago. Um, uh, and a lot of young folks hadn't, haven't heard of the Cult of the Dead Cow. It's not like a super, a super, it doesn't seem like a super timely thing. But my process was that, as you know, I, you know I'm, an, I'm an old guy and I've been covering cybersecurity and hackers for 20 years. And mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm best known for, for my, my previous book, um, Fatal System Error, which said that the Russian government was in cahoots with organized criminal hackers, um, which now seems like totally obvious. But when I, <laughs> yeah. when I published that in 2010, it was, it was, it was pretty radical. Um, and so that was like, that, that did really well. And it got, it was like, you know, arguably the first mainstream popular book that sold a bunch of copies that said, Hey, we're really screwed here. Um, <clears throat> a combination of, you know, fairly indefensible technology, attack surface, uh, geopolitics, uh, and, and the legal system, which, you know, allows pretty crappy software, um, to, to, to propagate, um, without liability. So, um, you know, I was part of that book and it brought like sort of widespread attention to it. And even people in Congress read it and, um, you know, people thought it was really bad. And since then, there've been all these other books that say, well, this, this aspect of, of cybersecurity is terrible. And that one's terrible. And, you know, here's something about the surveillance state. And here's something about the, you know, the military industrial internet complex. And they're all, you know, a lot of them were quite good, but they're all sort of going the same direction. Like we got a big Mm -hmm. problem here. And I decided that I wanted to do something that was more about, um, you know, what direction we should go in more sort of like, you know, not necessarily a solution, but like, you know, a, a way forward, um, something that was like more helpful than just, you know, calling attention to the problem. Sure. Um, because, you know, so many people were doing that. And so I also was trying to, um, capitalize on, on the fact that I've been around for a while. Um, and, you know, there are lots of, you know, younger, um, you know, more energetic folks that can code now writing about cybersecurity. But I'm, I'm trying to think of some way I could leverage the fact that I've been around for a while and have seen sort of the ups and downs. And I decided that what I wanted to do was was find something that had that had worked, something that was that had been um, real positive step in the past 
and see if I could bring that forward. Um, I mean, in a lot of like times of crisis, a lot of say, you know, pick some political crisis or war or something like that. You look back to uh, the people that have been in something similar in the past. Like, what did we do the last time we were in a cold war? Or what did we yeah. do the last time that there was a, you know, complete split in society about some, you know, critical issue? And in with cybersecurity, you know, one of the nice things is the heroes from the last one, the veterans, are still around. So we can just go and ask them. Um, and and that's what I tried to do. And these guys. You know, they go back 35 years, you know, to the to the beginning when there was there was not a World Wide Web. Um, right. And they are still around doing a variety of really interesting things um, in government, in nonprofits and in the private sector. And, uh, you know, the, the debates they had internally, their own moral development, I think, is a great way to sort of distill the key battles of the past so that people in their 20s now can, you know, I don't expect them to go and troll Usenet for, you know, and wade through all that stuff for for like the lessons of the past. I'm trying to give it to them in a in a package that's that's kind of enjoyable, um, where you know you might care about the characters and then say, well, you know, hey, I I would have made it this, I would have made the same call, or I would have made a different call, but get them thinking about the the ethical choices that these guys made along the way. Yeah, the, I love the idea of you know the heroes that were around the last time are still here. And it, it's very true. And I think a lot of the folks that, you know, maybe um, are just starting to learn about security or about the internet in general might not even realize that, you know, a lot of the kind of veterans that, ha, you know, were working on these problems in the nineties and early two thousands are still working on these problems, luckily for all of us. And I, I love the idea of giving those folks credit uh, where it's due for all the work they did back then or, and are continuing to do now. Yeah, there was a there's a keynote, I think, at Black Hat in the last year or, 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 or the year before um, by um, uh, one of the women in, in, who are important in Google security. And, and she was talking about the need to uh, cybersecurity on the d- defense side is, is fairly grim. And there's a need to celebrate the, what she, she was talking about, celebrating the milestones. You know, yeah. You know, when you accomplish something, take a break and 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 give yourself credit for it, and share and share what you did so that other people can build on it, um, or do the same thing. And that's part of what's going on here too, because it's people. There's a major burnout problem, as you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the bad guys usually win, um, and you know when it's important to celebrate the stuff that 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 goes right and, and try and emulate it. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, so. As you started to look at at CDC as you know, kind of an overarching um, you know group in their relationship to the security industry and and the internet as a whole, what was kind of your way into this story, Joe? Like, how did you picture it in your in your brain as you were starting the writing and reporting process? Well, so one thing that was useful to me was the sort of chronological development, and actually, this this sort of reminds me of my my first solo book, which was about Napster. And one of the, the advantages to writing about Napster was, were, were twofold. One, it's everybody had heard of it. Um, and, and, and yet there were things that people didn't understand about what was going on in the inside of that company, which is as crazy as anything that's going on outside of the company. Oh yeah. But, but the other is that um, the, the central figures were kids, you know, 17, 18 years old, and they came out to Silicon Valley. And 
my purpose in, in, in writing the book was to educate people about how, how crazy Silicon Valley in the late 90s was, you know, both in, in good ways where it brought forth, you know, great innovation and in bad ways where it crazed, you know, greed heads corrupted um, those developments, which is exactly what happened with Napster. Um, but the beauty part from a narrative perspective is that these 17 or 18 year olds don't know anything about venture capital. And so if you can recreate what it was like for them as like the VC comes in and, and pitches how this works or the lawyer comes in and, and, and sells them that their case is defensible, whatever, it's it's um, it's easy on the reader because you're bringing it to the reader's attention too. You're, you don't have to take a break and explain the history of, of Silicon Valley um, because the kids are learning it too. So you learn through their eyes. And so that's what I wanted to do here. I mean, when the CDC started, they're 13, 14 years old. Yeah. And, you know, so you get the excitement of the ability to connect for the first time, even though it's a pain, you know, with the, the, the creaky modems that, you know, are run by hamsters and whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, and so you get that. And then they are making the moral again to me, like the most important part of this whole thing is the sort of the moral development, the ethical calls, which are not only being made by security practitioners every day now, but by mainstream tech companies, Google, Facebook yada yada now everybody's in the moral cauldron all the time and i want them to learn to this but to get back to your question the moral calls you they made when they're 13 or 14 you're like well should is it better to steal a little long distance service from a lot of people or a lot of long distance service from like one big company that won't even know it's gone you know right if you start out with small moral stakes like that and then you see the same people like have to make like bigger decisions okay now we've got a flaw in Windows architecture, and Microsoft won't answer the phone. Yeah. What do we do now? Do we share it among our friends so that we can all pack more random people and go exploring? Um, do we give it to the U.S. government? Um, you know, what do we do? And their call in this case, you know, quite famously, was like basically to have a media circus, uh, to go to DefCon, uh, you know, start rapping and throwing out you know, CDs with, with powerful Trojan on it because yeah, innocent people are going to get hacked because of that. More of them definitely, but it's also going to force Microsoft to pay more attention. And that's, that was an interesting call. It, you know, I don't think it's a hundred percent the correct call, but it worked. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's fascinating. And I think that is, you know, that is echoing today. There are all sorts of close calls that are really important that are happening in obscurity um, or, you know, at a classified level that need broader discussion because they affect all of us. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels for that. I think you're right. And, you know, that was 20 years ago, which is, you know, in internet time for forever and ever, literally the dawn of the public internet, basically. And there's still researchers, you know, grap grappling with that same question. How do I handle this? You know, do I, do I disclose this flaw publicly? If the vendor's not responding, what is my recourse? Because there's still plenty of vendors, large and small, that don't really respond to this stuff quickly, or they don't have a team to do it. And that's that was certainly the case for Microsoft in the late '90s. And I think, you know, the CDC guys, what they did, and the Loft guys, the same thing, kind of the same approach, um, maybe a little bit differently. Well, let's but, talk about that because I think I think that's an interesting thing. So, right, so the. Really, in retrospect, the pioneers of what is now called responsible disclosure, which is kind of the, the, the law of the land now, um, was the law. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of people realize how the loft and CDC work together. But they were, they were the classic good cop, bad cop. Uh, so 
the law. So there were four people that were in both the loft and CDC. Um, and, uh, you know, over, over the lifespan of both. Um, and you know, the loft, you did advise, did public advisories, you know, they're some of the first, first widespread advisories that really got vendors attention, but they were always, you know, they were always sort of playing by the rules. I mean, they, you know, they didn't want their real names out. Um, but they were interested in getting the government's attention and, you know, staying bathed in light comparatively. And so, yeah, they they got to go testify before Congress in 1998, and and that was a real wake up call for folks. But when Back Office and Back Office 2K came out, Loft didn't want to go there um, because that was like that was giving exploit tools, um, you know, to to the masses. Um, sure. And so there was kind of this unspoken thing where, like, you know, if the Loft doesn't get your attention then meet my unkempt cousin in CDC and, and they'll get you. <laughs> Have you met my cousins in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> and they all had, uh, the, we should talk about, I want to talk about some of the, um, some of the real characters that were in CDC because there's a lot and they all have some pretty great handles. There's some good ones in the book and um, there's some folks that uh, I think a lot of people in the industry knew were members of CDC, but had never really acknowledged it publicly that, um, you know, you reveal in the book with their permission, we should make it clear. Um, one of whom is currently running for president, uh, Beto O'Rourke. So tell me a little bit about how that, um, how you came upon that piece of information, how you decided how to handle it. Yeah, sure. So this is an interesting question. Um, and, you know, is, is really amazing. I mean, still, I mean, I've known about this for a long time now, but the idea that a hacker is a serious presidential candidate is, is kind of mind blowing and not just, not just a hacker, but if you know, um, Matt Blaze, the, the great, you know, cryptology expert on, uh, goes back to a clipper chip and has done voting machine stuff. He, he, it's, yep. he said it's, um, close to the dead cow is like nerd skull and bones, uh, like <laughs> the Yale secret society, which is, you know, incredibly influential. Um, yeah. Um, to find out that a presidential candidate in that is it, it was in that is kind of amazing. But um, so when I was exploring doing a book about CDC, I knew you know in addition to the you know the long history and the the, the known players like Mudge and Chris Rue uh, who founded Veracode, you know all these really significant figures. I knew some other things about it, um, and one of the things I turned up in that preliminary reporting is that they, they had a member of Congress uh, who had been in. And mm-hmm. they wouldn't tell me, the, you know, the, the members who were speaking to me at that point early on wouldn't tell me which one. And I didn't know if I was ever going to figure out which one it was, and if I did, if that person would talk to me or not. But um, that was one of the factors that went into my saying, yeah, I think I can do a book on this that people would want to read. And so that was in my, my book proposal, and I said, there is a congressman. I didn't say which one. Um, and I explained sort of the arc, like why that made sense as like hacker, you know, security is becoming more fundamental to technology as technology is becoming more fundamental to the economy and to social life and to geopolitics. And it is you know, at some level appropriate to be expected that sooner or later, these security experts, um, you know, are, go- are going to play more central roles in, in our lives. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of weird that we have a president that, you know, that doesn't use email. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this guy is, is going to be the opposite. But anyway, so I knew there was a congressman. I didn't know which one. 
And um, early on in the writing process, um, I, you know, I, yeah, I tried to figure out who it was. And I happened to see that there was a guy running for Senate in Texas um, who was in this sort of magic age bubble, which meant that he came <laughs> of age after War Games, uh, the movie in 1983, and before the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in 1986. Yeah. Um, uh, so like when, you know, when you see what's possible and before it's explicitly criminalized, right. a, a very large number of the CDC folks um, fit into that bubble. So he fit in. So he's the right age. He was from Texas, which is where the group started. Uh, and he was in a punk rock band. And uh, <laughs> there are not a lot of people running for Senate who are in a punk rock band. But that <laughs> no. totally fits you know, the atmosphere of CDC. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of musicians um, uh, that were in CDC and artists and, and sort of, sort of other misfits um, who were, you know, the sort of the soul of the early internet. And so um, I made a guess to my couple, the, my, you know, my best CDC contacts and um, they wouldn't say one way or the other. They were like, mm. no, we're not going to talk about that, but maybe we can talk about it. One of them said, well, maybe we can talk about it after November. So, well, after November, well, that's the Senate race. So, right. okay, it is that guy. Um, but I didn't have it. I couldn't report it. I didn't know it. I just had this good guess. And yep. so uh, I said, well, okay, I mean, the book's not going to be out until November, after November anyway. Um, let's, you know, can, can, can I have the information under embargo? Which, for those of you who don't know anything about journalism, that is standard operating procedure. Um, they're, you know, particularly in when you're writing about political campaigns and you're trying to do a book, it is completely normal to uh, to have a deal where you wait a while until you can publish something. And that way everybody can be uncomfortable and you can get the thorough story instead of right. the, the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, um, quick one. Um, exactly. And so they said, um, and so they said, yes. And uh, um, yeah, they said, yeah, it is Beto. Um, and I said, holy cow. Uh, at that point, he's running for Senate. And um, after some time passed, I had the opportunity to meet him. And um, I told him what I was doing. I told him the story. The book would not appear until after November. And he said, um, yeah, sure. And then he, he, he agreed to an interview, and he was terrific. It, it's really interesting. I, you put out a story what, probably a month ago, six weeks ago, something like that, that, that revealed that. Maybe it was a little longer. Time flies. Um, but it's fascinating to me to see the way that he just kind of handled it. He was like, well, yeah, this is kind of what we did. You know, we were teenagers. It was, it was a fun time. We were trying to just build a community and he handled it really well. I thought, and kind of like, not casually, but he was, you know, matter of factly, this is what, you know, this is part of my life. I'm not going to deny it, that kind of thing. And certainly we have presidential candidates with uh, much bigger problems in their past than that. So, um, what was uh what was the process like when you were talking to your um your day job editors about printing that? Um well so you know, initially again the thinking was that he is either I mean I think there are a few reasons that he agreed to talk to me um about this. Um one is that I think he's you know, he seemed to be um he realizes like sort of the the cool factor about it. Um, you know, that these are not these are not arch criminals here. I mean, yeah, they stole long distance service, and yeah, they they wrote obnoxious teenage boy stuff because they were obnoxious teenage boys. But I, you know, he I think he gets you know the fact that these people were major contributors to 
um, to think to security thinking in a variety of ways. Um, mm -hmm. But he also, I think, I did, you know, we didn't explicitly talk about this, but I, I think he was either going to win the Senate race and have six years to live this down, or he was going to lose and he was going to be out of the public eye for a while while he figured out what to do next. And I don't think any, nobody involved in this process thought he was going to lose the Senate race and then become more important, which is, yeah. you know, running for, for president. So right. I think you, I mean, so I didn't tell my day job editors until I realized that he wasn't going away. Um, so this is like November, late November, December. I'm just working on the book. You know, I've just barely got the end of the book where he loses. And then like, wait a minute. He's like doing this weird like road trip through these states. And people yeah. are saying he might, he might run for president. Whoops. Um, and, and given that the embargo was up, um, you know, I, I thought, like, you know, if he runs for president, I've got, I, you know, I'm not going to sit on that. I've got I've got to put this out there so people know, because I, I no longer have a, you know, I no longer have a deal that's keeping it in the public. So mm -hmm. it wound up running like a day after he declared, after everybody had written their first pieces um, and about the guy and he's top of mind in the public. Um, and then I put it out there. It was actually the most interacted with story. Uh, on the Reuters home website ever. Um, oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was, true? It was huge. Absolutely. Huge. Oh, holy shit. Um, and, and then, yeah, so it was, it, so that was, it, it had been hard to, to sit on and it was, it was uh, a big relief to get it out there. Cause among other things, I've been terrified about security, you know, I'm writing about, oh, yeah. actors, you know, if yeah. I get hacked and this gets leaked, um, that's going to suck for everybody. Yeah, I I remember. The, I think the day or the day after it came out, I sent you a message. I was like, "Hey, great story! Congratulations!" You were just like, "Yeah, it was a big relief." You know, now, I know that feeling, like where you have this thing and you hope that you know, one, it doesn't get blown before you can write it, and two, like you hope that you're right. I mean, you knew you were right, but you just hope that you have everything correct, right? You just wanted to get out there and then move on with your life. Yeah, I'll say something else too, which is like I don't, I don't, th we, I don't think we've heard the last of this. Um, so, and Beto, Beto's initial response that day was, I, you know, understandable for like a politician in the public eye, which was that he was apologized for, you know, the stuff he wrote when he was fifteen. You know, there was, like, yeah, yeah, there was like, uh, there's one in particular. There's like a, a murder fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, maybe it was part of an English assignment, you know, maybe, um, you know, whatever. I mean, it's the sort of thing that I could see. I remember like having like hormonal, you know, rages when I was a teenager and I probably, you know, written some nasty stuff too, but it was under a pseudonym and he never thought he, it would get out or whatever. So he apologized yeah. for that. I don't think he's really come back much and talked about the positive parts of this, the sort of the, the critical thinking that's necessary to be a hacker. Um, and I kind of hope that he does. And I, I think that would be good for um, the hacking community, the security community, because I think, um, you know, in order to be a serious hacker, you're by definition a critical thinker. You're not taking the, you know, the manual and, and using it as designed. You're, you're trying to figure out ways to, to work around it. And, you know, I think you know, if you think everything in Washington is going terrific, then maybe we don't need anybody like that in office. Um, but if you have some sort of fundamental issue with something, then you want a critical thinker. I'm not saying it has to be this guy, uh, maybe it's somebody else. But I think there's a real value to to that sort of thing. And frankly, if, if the last few years 
have taught us anything in America, it's it's that we have a shortage of critical thinking. Uh, we have people that are being, you know, following their gut and being persuaded by, you know, sophisticated, manipulative, uh, semi-truthful or non-truthful statements that are spreading like wildfire. Yeah. And you know what? You know, I think the country needs some like, you know, crash education program. You know, where you evaluate sources and and all that sort of thing. But I, it's hard to imagine that happening, right? Um, yeah. Education is largely a state-funded thing, and it's a state-underfunded thing, and there are a lot of reasons why I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it would be nice if there was some actual public debate about um, the value of critical thinking. Yeah, it sure would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know you did a ton of research and interviews and stuff for this book. So I wanted to talk about there's a lot of characters in it. Like I, you know, I know a lot of these folks pretty well and they're really interesting people. Um, so aside from Beto, what would you say were the most, most interesting folks to interview for the book? Hmm. Um, well, one of the things I like about, I mean, uh, what I like about CDC is that it's such a, it's a big tent. Um, so you, so you've got people that wound up doing very serious work for the government. I mean, mm -hmm. as serious as it gets, uh, for the government, running DARPA's cybersecurity program on offense and defense. So that's much. Yep. Um, and then on the other, you know, end of the spectrum, you've got, um, you know, an experimental filmmaker um, and you've got, you know, a graphic artist. Um, uh, so it's hard to, hard to pick, hard to pick a favorite there. I mean, the point in, in some ways was the range. Um, but that's a good point. <laughs> but in terms, you know, so, I mean, the, the, the outstanding contributor to government cybersecurity award goes to much. Peter Zatko, you know, who served in DARPA and has done um, other very interesting things, including starting a sort of consumer reports-ish um, system for evaluating um, software on uh, safety grounds without access to the, to, um, the source code. Um, in sort of the, the corporate... Defense Private Sector Award uh, goes to Chris Rue, uh, who co-founds Veracode, uh, now a billion-dollar company, uh, which made a dramatic difference in sort of the balance of power between software vendors and the big buyers, you know, who could evaluate the binaries and and make you know and and find real problems with them. Yeah. Um, and then in sort of like the, the the cultural wing of the house, like the, the liberal arts section of the Hacker Underground, um, Death Veggie, uh, Death Vegetable, who I named for the first time in the book, um, is a really interesting character who, you know, he was the CDC's minister of propaganda and he was around for, uh, for, for 20 years. He was really kind of the heart and soul of the group and kept it together. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, probably like the, like the most gray character would be Oxblood Ruffin. Um, mm -hmm. So this is pretty much the father of hacktivism. Um, <coughs> pardon the cough. Um, and uh, he, he, he comes in after CDC is already pretty established, already pretty famous uh, or, or on its way, well on its way. And he's, he's the one that sort of cajoles them into doing more um, political, overtly political stuff. That's not, it's not just technical, uh, technical work. Um, right. So, you know, helping people in China circumvent um, censorship uh, and the Great Firewall. Um, but um, he also makes some shit up. 
um, a fair amount of it uh, that deceives my brethren and sister in the press. <laughs> so I had yeah. to, it was hard for me to set aside my, my personal kind of revulsion at um, falsehoods and um, marketing and spin, which, you know, are sort of like the enemy of what I do every day. Um, right. But because they, Oxblood in particular, spun some tall tales, they brought, um, you know, a lot of attention to a pretty serious thing and got people, got people, um, got people excited um, to contribute time and effort and credibility to helping folks um, do good things. So I, I think, you know, I think Oxblood is a very hard person to, to figure out entirely. Um, but I thought he would, he was certainly among the, the more interesting people in the book. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And the anecdote that Joe's re- referring to, it, I, I think mainly is the Hong Kong blondes story, which, you know, I think a lot of the listeners will know something about, but is you really dive into it in pretty good detail in the book. And it's, it's a really fascinating kind of scenario that um, goes a long way, I think, to showing exactly the way that information can be manipulated. And this was, I forget what year that was, but it was a long time ago um, that that all happened. Um, But a lot of that kind of misinformation slash disinformation is still going on now, obviously. Right. So this is the, so like I said, you know, earlier on, I said that there's a lot of stuff they did that is, is on balance. It worked, but um, is not a a clear call is not a, you know, hundred percent. That was the right thing to do, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is like life and, and it makes it more interesting. And the Hong Kong blondes is certainly, certainly one of those things. Um, if they had, you know, that story, you know, a large percentage of that story, um, if not all of it is, is made up. Um, and yet it, it galvanized a lot of folks. Uh, and I sort of trace it, you know, to some clear good actually being done. So, I mean, it's all spelled out in the book, but they spin this story. It gets media attention. Somebody reads it. Who's in, actually helping the Tibetans in, you know, the story briefly is about an alleged alliance between the CDC and these underground dissidents, um, tech savvy dissidents in China. Uh, and you know, it, nobody besides Oxblood has ever claimed to have met any of these people. And Oxblood admits that he met, uh, one of them. Uh, and that's, that's not clear. Um, anyway, a guy, but it was reported as truth um, in places like Wired and the LA Times. Uh, and later, a couple years later, somebody who's helping the Tibetans, who are dealing with all kinds of um, Chinese malware coming at them in India, reads mm-hmm. the story, gets in touch with Oxblood, comes to a DEF CON, is on a panel with Oxblood in 2001, where there, it's all about hacktivism. Uh, and they stay in touch, and eventually that guy brings Oxblood to India to also help out the Tibetans, um, and then Oxblood inspires the Citizen Lab, which is doing just amazing work and has been for decades now in at the University of Toronto. Yeah. Um, and Oxblood introduces the people in India to the Citizen Lab folks, and this becomes the GhostNet report, the, the raw material in the GhostNet report, which is the, the first public accounting of an advanced persistent threat. And it's about, they, they used the malware samples that was going after the Tibetans, uh, the, you know, were also being used in all kinds of other places. And there's some really good detective work. 
and um, they expose this big Chinese spying net. So even though it starts out as fiction, it winds up having a huge real-world impact with stuff that is true. It's it's yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating story. It really is, and that whole kind of tracing it through to the ghost net thing is fascinating. You you know, if people listening haven't read that ghost net report, I think that came out in like two thousand nine. It was a long time ago, but it was so well done and really fascinating. Um, Joe, I know we're running short on time. Just a couple of quick things. Is there anybody that you wanted to interview for the book, but weren't able to get for one reason or another? There's probably a few, I would imagine, something well, this big. Well, it was, it was super hard to get Kevin Wheeler, uh, the founder of the group. Um, yeah. I almost didn't get him. Um, <laughs> I know in the acknowledgments that, you know, some people think the, the one early knock on the CDC was that they were self-aggrandizing, which is completely true. I mean, they had a, the slogan like world domination through media saturation. They love yes. They love dealing with the press, uh, which was almost as off-putting to me as the fact that they sometimes made shit up. Um, but putting that aside, uh, the um, Kevin, there are lots of people that did not initially want to cooperate and certainly would, would were not interested in getting their real names out there. But I, I sure. that was one precondition. And another was, was access to internal emails because given their history of as coyote tricksters, you know, there's no, you know, I can't take their word for anything. Um, so I, I needed, I needed backup. Anyway, Kevin Wheeler was like the incredible showman um, that founded the group and that led the, the, the DEF CON presentations in like rabbit fur chaps and a cowboy hat while rapping. <laughs> Is it actually incredibly shy? And um, not only did he not respond to my inquiries, but his like effective number two, Death Veggie, Harassed, had to harass him for months, and the thing that finally did it was that he said, "Look, I'm going to send you a singing telegram unless you get on the phone and talk to me about Joe Men's project." And then finally, he said, "Okay, all right, I'll listen to you a little bit." So I was not at all clear that I was going to get him, which was bizarre because I got Beto O'Rourke. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> right. Beto O'Rourke is going to talk to me. Why wouldn't the founder of this group? Um, so I eventually, I eventually got everybody um, I needed to get. I, I would have liked. Um, uh, the founders of um, uh, Masters of Deception, um, Chris Gunnigan, yeah. uh, and uh, and um, and some of his colleagues. Um, there are a couple others that would have been nice, but there was nobody that would that was critical that I that I didn't get. And uh, I'd like to say again that I really appreciate the sixteen people in this group that allowed me to write their names in print for the first time. Um, not just Beto, but other people, you know, with a lot to lose that are in. Um, you know, big companies, small companies, and are having to explain that, oh, yeah, I did this really interesting stuff that I never told you about 20 years ago. <laughs> that, to me, is one of the best parts of it. It's like this book is kind of genetically engineered, like to appeal directly to me. I really <laughs> loved it um, just because I knew a lot of the people and, I, you know, and I knew a lot of the stories, but not all of them. And so like putting a lot of the pieces that you were able to find and like connect all of these dots, I thought was just great. I, I think I read it in about 12 hours just over the course of two days. As soon as I got it, I, I flew through it. So um, you should be really proud of it, Joe. It's a great book and it's really interesting. And um, as we're recording this, I think it comes out It comes out June 4th. Is that right, Joe? That's right. June 4th. All right. Uh, one, one could pre-order now and, and get it immediately. And I am doing like an actual book tour type <laughs> thing. Um, I'll be at the Council on, on Foreign Relations in New York on the 3rd. Um, and then there'll be a public event in New York, June 
12 at uh, a place called Civic Hall. I'll be in Washington at uh, Politics and Prose. There are a few different Politics and Proses, but I'll be at one of them on uh, June uh, June 11th. Um, nice. Uh, more more TBD, including hopefully something in Boston. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. And are you doing stuff around uh, Def Con and Black Hat this summer too? Um, we there will be a panel at Black Hat that has me, Mudge, Dill Dog, and Death Veggie mm-hmm. um, appearing for the first time under his actual name. Uh, and I sure hope uh, we get to speak at Def Con as well. That would be great. All right. Well, thanks a lot for doing this, Joe. I really appreciate appreciate it. And uh, congrats again on the book, man. It's really, really well done. Thanks, Dennis. Appreciate your work. All right. Take care.